The reading this morning is taken from 1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Well, good morning and welcome to our next teaching session on the book of First Peter. I'd like to divide our passage this morning into three short sections. First of all, in verse 12, Peter warns his readers of the fiery trial which was about to hit them. Then in verses 13 to 18, Peter interprets their suffering and in particular gives reasons why God was going to permit this suffering to come. And finally in verse 19, Peter concludes by telling us how Christians should respond to this type of suffering. So first of all, let's look at what Peter describes as the fiery trial in verse 12, and in particular, why he gives this unusual description. Now, Peter is believed to have written this letter in the early 60s AD, around the time when Nero was persecuting Christians, blaming them for having burnt down the city of Rome, whenever he in fact had been responsible. But that persecution was for now at least limited to Rome. And you'll remember that Peter wrote this letter to believers who were in a region which we would now call Northern Turkey. He refers to Pontus, Galatia and Bithynia. Christians in this region were not yet suffering the same persecution as Christians in Rome. But Peter is warning them of an impending wave of persecution, which he calls a fiery trial. Now it's interesting that in the archeological record, we have copies of a letter uh, written by a Roman governor in precisely this region in Northern Turkey, about 50 years after Peter's letter was written. The governor is known nowadays as Pliny the Younger, Pliny wrote to Caesar asking for advice on how to deal with Christians and Caesar wrote back and we have copies of both those letters. Pliny states uh, and describes his own personal policy. He says that he generously gives Christians multiple chances to deny their belief in Christ and only if they refuse three times are they executed. 
Pliny regards this as quite generous and fair. So you can imagine that some of the young people who received Peter's letter would later in their lives face the death penalty if they were publicly accused of being a Christian and if they refused to recant. And this was done in the name of Roman justice. So what was their crime? Why did a Roman governor come to see Christianity as being such a threat that it was punishable by death? This is where Peter's wording is rather interesting. Remember that at the start of his letter, Peter writes to believers whom he calls exiles. Then at the end of his letter, he passes on greetings from a person he calls she who is in Babylon. Now, whether Babylon here is literal Babylon or whether it's code for Rome, uh, we don't need to discuss. But since Peter writes his letter to people he calls exiles and refers to Babylon, it seems that Peter is telling these readers that they were living in similar circumstances to those Old Testament people such as Daniel. Daniel, along with his friends Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, were exiles living in Babylon and serving under King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, with that in mind, what does the term fiery trial bring to your mind? It reminds me of what happened to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego when they refused to worship the golden idol which King Nebuchadnezzar set up. He wanted to unify his empire and so he created a false god which he insisted everyone worshipped. And anyone who did not worship it would be judged by being thrown into the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow down to the state's idol. They refused to worship the ideology which was being pushed by the state to unify the empire. And because of that, they faced the fury of the fiery furnace. The time was coming when Christians in the region Peter was writing to would be required to worship Caesar as a god. They would be pressed to burn a little incense to Caesar to acknowledge his divinity. Some, no doubt, compromised. But many others responded like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and were put to death by the Roman state as a result. But who won in the end? Eventually, the Roman state was turned on its head and the gospel was not only tolerated in the Roman Empire, it was welcomed and preached. There have been many times in history when it has been a crime to refuse to worship the false gods constructed by the state government. They invent false gods to capture people's loyalty to the state. Anyone who says that these gods and ideologies are false, anyone who refuses to worship them has been regarded by the state as a criminal. And in some cases they've suffered the death penalty. It was happening in Rome, it had happened in Babylon, and it was going to be happening soon in the people 
to whom Peter was writing. And it is still happening in our world today in certain countries. To be known as a Christian and to refuse to deny your faith can be a death sentence. So how would you respond if such a state of affairs were to arise in our own country here? Would you take up arms against the state? Would you use violence to express your anger and your sense of injustice? Well, it may surprise you that that is what Peter did as a younger man. You remember when soldiers came to arrest the Lord in Gethsemane? Peter took his sword and cut off the ear of one of the officials. Peter thought that was a legitimate expression of his anger and a legitimate response to injustice. But the Lord rebuked Peter and he healed the injured official who had come to arrest him. And the Lord told Peter that violence would not solve the problem. Now at this point I have to say a word of praise to Peter. Peter is often criticised for his mistakes. But the great thing about Peter is that he learned from his mistakes. He learned under the Lord's mentoring. You should never criticise someone who makes lots of mistakes provided they learn from them. Reserve your criticism for people who may not make so many mistakes as Peter, but they never learn from their mistakes. They keep making them over and over again. They deserve our criticism, not Peter. Now, in the news in recent days, we have seen that there are some people in our world today who are responding to their sense of injustice and suffering by resorting to violence. However understandable their anger might be, there are reasons why violence just does not work and why it is counterproductive. If someone feels that they are victims of the abuse of power by the state, then they can come to see life as a power struggle against the state. And when people respond with violence, what they are saying is we are going to match power with power. And that simply confirms in the state's perception that these people are indeed a threat to stability in society. Responding with violence reinforces the misperception of the state. And in that type of power struggle, generally there's only one winner. And those political commentators and academics who have encouraged disadvantaged people to see their life as victims of power and to see their life as part of a great power struggle, they seem to me to be in danger of making the problem worse. Christ did not want Peter to see the fight for justice as a power struggle. Christ's battle was to bring people to God. He does not do that by his power. Christ has brought justice and justification to people who have suffered injustice, but he has done that by himself enduring unjust suffering. Peter, now as an older man in this letter, does not tell believers to arm themselves with swords. 
Indeed, as David so beautifully reminded us last week, Peter says at the start of this chapter that we should arm ourselves, yes, but arm ourselves with the same attitude that Christ had, with the same way of thinking that Christ had when he faced unjust suffering. That is our powerful weapon. Christ's response in his arrest, in his trials, and in his crucifixion totally transformed Peter's way of thinking about suffering. As a younger man, there had been a terrible moment in Peter's life when he had actually taken the Lord aside and rebuked him. It was when the Lord had said that he was going to suffer and be killed. And in Peter's mind, suffering like that was to be avoided at all costs. And so he wanted the Lord to use his power to prevent suffering. On that occasion, the Lord Jesus graciously mentored Peter. And Peter eventually came to share Christ's way of thinking about suffering. What Peter learned from the Lord was really the inspiration for this whole letter in which Peter talks so much about Christ's attitude to suffering and about the different type of sufferings which Christians can experience. So let's turn now to the next section in verses 13 to 18 where Peter gives in particular reasons of God's purposes in allowing this suffering to happen. What were the reasons behind it? And what were God's reasons for allowing it? Now, in verses 13 to 18, Peter says that when people see Christians and observe how they respond to unjust suffering, they will actually be seeing something of Christ. You may remember the Lord's parable about judging the sheep and the goats at the Lord's return. Both groups were judged on how they responded to Christ. And when both said, but we have never seen Christ, the answer they were given was, when you saw Christians in need and Christian suffering, you were seeing me. And how you responded to Christians in need is how you would have responded to me had you met me face to face. And when Christians face unjust suffering, when we experience that feeling of weakness and helplessness, that is when Christ can be revealed in us. Peter says in these verses that you are sharing in Christ's suffering. He says that if you are insulted for the name of Christ, then you can know that the spirit of glory and the spirit of God is resting on you. That is when other people see through the jars of clay that we are and they see the treasure inside, which is Christ in us. Some people will like what they see and be drawn to Christ. Others will uh, reject that and their reaction to us. Either way, when we live like Christ, it, the effect is to expose at the deepest level their heart's response to Christ. Now, some people have said to me, and they may have said to you, 
If I should ever find myself standing before God, I will challenge him. I will ask him, why did you never reveal yourself to me? Why did you hide your existence? To people like that, God will want to be able to point to Christians that those people met. Christians who respond to criticism and suffering in their own lives and who responded the way Christ responded. What an honour it would be if the way you responded to criticism and suffering in your life was to be used on that great day as evidence in the divine court, either to reward or to condemn those who thought they had never seen Christ. Peter gives a second reason in these verses why God was going to permit persecution in verses 17 and 18. He says first that it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, what does he mean by that? The Lord has often permitted persecution. For this reason, it purifies a corrupt and compromising church. And there are times when the Lord allows persecution as discipline. And in that sense, it is judgment in the household of God. But God does not forget the perpetrators of that persecution. He does not forget the injustice of the state which carried out the persecution. And he does not forget the ideologies which underpin the persecution. And once persecution has done its good work in the Christian church, God will deal with those evil regimes and with their ideologies, which dealt so unjustly with Christians. Those of us who are older will remember how Christians in Eastern Europe were cruelly persecuted in the old communist world. We remember believers like Pastor Richard Wurmbrandt who was tortured and who suffered terribly for his faith under the communist regime in Romania. And there were others who, across communist Eastern Europe who suffered similarly. And yet, what has happened in Eastern Europe? God has brought down the anti-God ideology of Marxism in that uh, Eastern Europe. It has been judged. Now those same countries are much more open to the gospel. Imagine what would have happened if Christians had taken up arms against the state. History would have been very different. Ideologies which become anti-God will in the end be destroyed. But God plays a long game. And if Christians mobilize and even take up arms and see the issue as a power struggle against the state, that often delays and even hinders God's judgment of evil ideologies. So now we come to Peter's conclusion in verse 19, where he addresses the question, how should Christians respond to this type of suffering? I want to bring out just two points which Peter mentions in verse 19. This is what he says. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator 
while doing good. First, you notice that Peter talks about suffering according to God's will. What does Peter mean by that? Some Christians think that God's will is something fatalistic, which cannot be avoided. So if something happens, despite our efforts to stop it, we say, oh, that must have been God's will. So suffering means, suffering according to God's will means that you accept that God must have a plan that can't possibly be changed. So we should just accept it fatalistically and positively. But that is not how the Lord Jesus taught about God's will. You may remember that when the Lord Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before he would bear the sins of the world on the cross, that he prayed three times to his Father. Father, he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he added, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Everything within the Lord Jesus rebelled against the suffering that he would endure if he went ahead with the plan of redemption. Christ had his own will, as he says, his own free will, but his final decision would not be based simply on his will. If he had acted according to his own will and done what he wanted at that moment, there would have been no redemption for us. But the Lord Jesus recognized that there was a higher level at which decisions are made. He knew that there was what God wanted, God's will, his Father's will, and that had to be taken into account. And Christ chose consciously to put his Father's will ahead of his own. That was no fatalistic acceptance. Christ was not saying, well, if it's inevitable, if it can't be changed, I'll just go along with it. No, Christ was making the final choice as to whether or not <clears throat> he would walk the road of intense suffering, which would open up the way back to God for humanity. And bless the Lord, <clears throat> he chose the cross. He chose to suffer according to God's will, as Peter says. And that is what Peter had learned to do. And it is what he is urging us to do. Here in Northern Ireland, we may not face the prospect of being put to death for our faith. But we still have to make decisions which could lead to suffering based on what God's will is. For example, some Christians today have faced the choice of whether or not to enter into a relationship which is not in keeping with God's will in the scriptures. It may be a relationship with a non-Christian, or it may be a relation with someone of the same sex. The people, Christians know that by consciously choosing to live according to God's will, they may be choosing a more lonely and isolated path. But many have chosen to do God's will and know that they will live with the consequences. Or in other situations, we may have to choose between doing what would be convenient and comfortable on the one hand and doing 
what God would want and serving God on the other, even if it involves making sacrifices. When we make sacrifices because we choose what God would want rather than what our natural self would want, that is what Peter is talking about here. Even in that context, we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And the final point which Peter makes in responding to opposition and even persecution is that we should keep on doing good. Doing good sometimes doesn't feature prominently in the evangelical press today. Perhaps it's because we're so afraid of thinking that it might imply good works for salvation. But when Peter is preaching to the Roman centurion Cornelius in the book of Acts, Peter sums up his recollection of the life of Christ in these words. He went about doing good. What a description of the life of Christ. And when Christians continue to do good, even in the face of criticism and opposition, then people will be seeing something of the Lord Jesus Christ in us. I pray that the Lord will use his word to us this morning to encourage us so that this world will see something of the Lord Jesus in us and in our lives, especially at times when we are going through stress and even suffering. Let's pray now and then after that we will sing that lovely hymn, There is a higher throne. <clears throat> Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus who faced unjust suffering. And yet Peter tells us that Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Father, I pray for every believer who may be having to suffer injustice at the moment, suffering unjust suffering. I pray that in that, they may reveal something of the attitude of Christ, the same attitude that Christ displayed when he faced similar sufferings. And through that, that Christ may be revealed in the lives of your saints. And through that, that others might come to know God. So we commit us into your hands. We ask that you would bless your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen.